Good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, we will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 through chapter 9, verse 7. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is uh, Ian. If I have the chance to meet you, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors uh, here at the King's Church. And before we get started, I want to go ahead and dismiss our kids who are hanging out in Kingdom Kids today. Uh, if you are in preschool, you can head over here to this door and meet your teachers. If you are in K-1 or elementary, over here on this side. And uh, if you've got any questions, just pop out into the hallway and uh, someone will magically appear to help you. Or at least I hear that's what uh, has been promised out there. Uh, shout out to Kyle for reading. You can tell dad of three, right? That forearm strength right here, <laughs> flipping the page with his other hand. That was great. Thanks, Davis family, for reading for us. And uh, man, I'm excited to uh, open up God's Word. It's been a few weeks since I've preached. I got a little break here before this stretch. Uh, grateful for our other pastors who uh, faithfully delivered the Word. And man, we're blessed here at the King's Church to have... Uh, just a deep bench of communicators who are uh, also excellent preachers. But uh, I'm excited to uh, hop back into uh, doing what I love this morning, which is uh, opening up God's Word. And we have uh, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible to uh, consider today. 
Uh, as Pastor Andrew set up for us last week, our uh, Advent series this year, as we look back at the first coming of Christ and as we long for his second, uh, has this kind of theme of humility tagged onto it. And I want us to acknowledge for just a moment today uh, that humility is a bit of a slippery reality for us. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let me uh, paint a picture for you. Imagine that you are applying for a job, and in this job application, you're given I don't know, like a hundred attributes, and they say, hey, go ahead and circle like, you know, five to ten of these attributes that you think most define you. So on there, you know, you see things like hardworking, uh, dependable, loyal, punctual, creative, works well on a team, you've got all these attributes, and then one of them that shows up is humble. Now let me ask you the question, are you going to circle humble on that job application? It's kind of a trap, isn't it? Because after all, if you circle humble, uh, you've kind of canceled it out, haven't you? And if you don't circle humble, you're like, well, I mean, everybody wants to be humble, right? Now what are they going to think about me? It's, it's sort of a trap. This is what I mean by humility being a bit slippery. The minute you think that you have become humble, guess what? You've canceled it out and you're acting in pride. Uh, it's a challenging concept to grab hold of and an even more challenging reality to live within. Now, none of that means that we should give up the pursuit of humility, of course. We just have to make sure that we're pursuing it the right way. I was thinking this week about uh, what David Brooks calls resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, the resume virtues are skills that you bring to the marketplace that help you get a job that you want to make sure people know about so that you might be viewed as impressive or trustworthy or hireable. The eulogy virtues, though, are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. And humility is one of those eulogy virtues, isn't it? But the problem, as David Brooks points out, is that many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than how to build inner character. And when we try to slap humility onto that paradigm, we realize that we struggle to grasp for it. And so one of the things that he says has to happen to develop inner character, to develop eulogy virtues is a humility shift. He says that the development of those things come to those who acknowledge and know their weaknesses, to those who are honest with themselves, who know they do not have it all put together and are willing to admit that they themselves, in some way, shape, or form, have contributed to the problem of this world and the problem of our own lives. And brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that that's precisely what the season of Advent invites us to do. Fleming Rutledge says it this way, Advent is the season that when properly understood does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world. Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light, but the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. Advent bids us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. Our passage today from Isaiah is going to bid us the very same thing, to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. And as we look at the darkness, it helps us to appreciate the glorious light of Christ that has burst forth and will again burst forth for all to see. And how we inhabit that is through the humble path. So this morning, here's our main idea. God calls us out of our pride through the glorious gift of Jesus who must 
be humbly received. God calls us out of our pride through the glorious gift of Jesus who must be humbly received. Before we turn to his word, let's pray together and ask the Lord to reveal himself to us in this time. God, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for uh, the gift of the Advent season where we uh, do look back while simultaneously looking forward. Help us to inhabit that tension well today. Holy Spirit, may you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ today. Christ, may you make your glory and your goodness and your greatness known to us in this room through your word And in your kindness, may it draw us to repentance and greater faith in you. Help us to see those things now. Accomplish your good work in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by looking at the darkness of pride. And of course, we're parachuting into the book of Isaiah here, so some context might be helpful for you. Uh, Isaiah chapter 8 is set in the 8th century BC, some 700, 750 years before the coming of Christ. And the people at this time are being led by King Ahaz, who is considered one of the most evil rulers in Judah. His reign was marked by war and by unfaithfulness to the Lord. He continually disregarded God and his commandments and his covenant with his people. He worshipped idols and graven images, and he led the people of Israel to participate in all sorts of pagan religious practices. And by this point in Israel's history, there were beginning to be threats from the country, the nation of Assyria. They were threatening military attack upon Jerusalem. And so what did the people need? They needed good leadership. And they needed wisdom and guidance in the face of this impending attack from a terrifying enemy. And that's the backdrop of our text this morning. So let's pick it up. If you've got your copy of the scriptures in Isaiah 8, verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, now I bet you didn't expect to hear that word in church this morning. That's a fun word, isn't it? When you inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Now, God's people knew where they were supposed to turn for wisdom and guidance and help. They were supposed to turn to the Lord and to his word that he has graciously given to them. That is the teaching and the testimony, the exclamation point of verse 20. But instead of doing this, they turn to magicians and mystics to try to solve their problems. They were consulting the mediums, the necromancers. That's some ancient version of psychics or tarot cards, those who inquire on the dead to gain wisdom in the present. And the indictment here from the prophet Isaiah is that the people did not turn to the Lord because they had no dawn. I think about dawn. Dawn is when sunlight begins to burst forth and end the darkness of night. He's saying that they have no light of illumination. They have no sense of where they ought to turn. They dwelt in darkness in every sense of that word. And the consequences of this are dire. Look at verse 21. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, 
and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah here promises a future exile for the people. It will be marked by horrible realities, distress, hunger, depression. And in the midst of the consequences of their actions, they will become enraged at the Lord. They will speak out against him. It says they will turn their faces upward. It seems to be in an anger and in a pride of how dare you put us in this situation. And then verse 22 is where I want us to pause for a moment. In the midst of this distress, in the midst of their sin, and in the midst of the predicament they find themselves in, it says the people will look where for solutions. It says they will look not to the Lord, but to the earth. They will look to the earth. They feel the darkness creeping in, and they think pridefully, well, we can figure this out. We just need to get organized. We need to get the right people on the job. We can take care of this ourselves. Yes, we see this threat off in the distance, but if we just use our resources, we're going to be just fine. And Isaiah says, when they think like that, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Their problems will actually only get worse. They will not get better. And we might think that this is just foolish by the people, but some context is helpful. At the time of this writing, things are relatively prosperous for Jerusalem. If you told the people they were getting ready to walk into exile in a gloomy darkness, well, their bank account and their comfortable life and their seeming prosperity and affluence would make it hard for them to see that that could be a reality. And in their pride, they do not turn to God for illumination and for light and for help. Now, I'm going to go on a limb this morning and, and say that I'm doubtful that any of you here in this room have consulted any necromancers recently. Okay, if you have, we're available to talk. That's okay. But I can assure you that every single one of us in this room are tempted to do exactly what the Israelites do in verse 22. Let me put it this way. We all know that this world is a messed up place, don't we? Things are not the way they are supposed to be here. All of us face hardships and difficulties and complications and disappointments in different ways. But let me ask you this morning, how are you coping with that? How are you trying to solve the maybe seemingly endless problems that life has thrown your way? Where do you turn when things are stressful and hard and, quite frankly, a bit overwhelming? Because here's what I know to be true about my own heart. We are tempted to look every day, not to the Lord, but to the earth to solve our problems. We're tempted not to look upward as we should, but inward and outward. How often do we look to technology, to our financial assets, to dieting, to degrees, to an election or a politician, to a spouse or our children or to our material possessions, whatever it is for you, and ask it to deliver to us ultimate comfort and security and guidance. Do we turn to God and his word or do we turn to our own devices? Do we run to the teaching and to the testimony or do we run to the latest promise of health, wealth, and success that the world vainly offers us? You see, brothers and sisters, when we do this, we are walking in darkness. And ultimately, we are walking in pride. Here's the problem. The ultimate folly of looking to the earth for light and for help and to solve our issues is that the scriptures tell us that the spiritual state of the world we live in is darkness. And more uncomfortably, darkness is also the state 
of our own souls outside of the grace of our Lord Jesus. And the Advent season is designed to remind us of these realities. Darkness in the scriptures, it represents chaos, evil, and sin. And Christmas tells us that Jesus has come in the midst of our darkness as the light of the world. But what is the response of the world? John 3 puts it this way. The light, Jesus, has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now here's my particular concern for us this morning. It's all too easy to view darkness and evil and chaos as being an out there problem. Right After all, we can scroll through social media, we can turn on the news, we can read the paper, we can be completely bombarded by all the problems that exist out there, all while forgetting that every single one of us are co-conspirators in the darkness. This is not just an out there problem, friends, this is also an in-here reality. As the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn that's how I think you pronounce it. I did some work, that's the best I got, okay? He famously put it this way. If only it were so simple that there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Or as the psalmist says it in 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the prideful push back against that. They blame shift. They point the finger elsewhere. By the way, that's deep in our spiritual heritage, as old as our ancient parents in the Garden of Eden. To point the finger at somebody else. Well, it was that woman you gave me. Well, it was the serpent who said this. All while failing to humbly see reality. The humble, though, know that that is true. That the dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. That no one is righteous. No, not one, the Apostle Paul says. The humble know that this is true. And therefore, they don't look inside themselves. And they don't look outward at the world for help. They look upward to the Lord. They look for a rescue that comes from outside of the darkness within and the darkness without. They look for a light that is shining from somewhere else. But this morning, in the midst of your problems and predicaments and sin and struggles and hardships, where are you looking? Where are your eyes fixed? Is it internal? Is it to the earth? Or is it to the Lord? There's an abrupt turn in our text that happens in chapter 9. Chapter 9 begins, but there will be no gloom for, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, the Lord, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. This promise here is given to the most northern part of Israel, those on the outskirts who were always the first to be attacked by invading enemies. They were in the region of Galilee. See, whenever invaders would come to take Israel or come and attack Jerusalem, that area was always attacked first. And Assyria had set its sights on it. 
And so the comment here is that they are a people who dwell in a land of deep darkness. Literally in the Hebrew, you could translate that. They dwell in death's shadow. But there's a glorious promise here. For those who feel death's shadow creeping in, a light has shone in the darkness. Literally, a light has flashed upon them from outside of the world. And this is an unexpected light to an unlikely people. I mean, the back country that is Galilee had no reputation. When Jesus grows up in Nazareth and they make some comments about where he come from, what do they say? Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's the reputation of this area. But yet, Matthew chapter four, the light of the world has come, and where does Jesus precisely begin his ministry? Right here. Matthew quotes this verse to remind us that Jesus goes to the overlooked place and to the people who desperately know they don't have it all together and they need help. And the promise here is that there will be no more gloom for those who are in anguish. Well, how do we know that? As the text goes on, this light that flashes into creation, it's going to show us that three beautiful realities will spring forth. There are three consequences of this light. The first thing that it will produce is a joy, a deep joy. Look at Chapter 9, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The image here is God taking a small, ragtag, insignificant remnant and expanding them into a great nation. Rather than distress and depression, there is joy overflowing. There is flourishing taking place. The people cannot contain their excitement. They're experiencing a joy. It's a kind of joy that Isaiah tells us is like a full harvest. There's nothing quite like a great meal, right? This is the season for feasting. Don't we love great meals this time of year? I mean, we can get downright joyful at the table with good food and good family and good friends, as we should, by the way. There's something a bit heavenly about that experience. And Isaiah is writing to these tribes who would be conquered by Assyria. Many of them would be taken into exile out of the land, but the picture here is of a harvest. Something that would have benefited, by the way, the people both in their pockets and in their belly. They would have economic security and their hunger would be fulfilled. It's like a full harvest. But the joy is also like the spoils after victory. How does the phrase go? To the victor goes the spoils. If you defeat the enemy, you get all the best stuff. This is like the locker room scene after a national championship is won, right? The champagne bottles are popped. The cigars are lit. Everyone around is celebrating unencumbered. And for a people who are to be conquered, there is a joy promised like that. It's hard to fathom, isn't it? But the promise is that this kind of joy is coming. Secondly, this light brings freedom. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The imagery here is one of oppression, a yoke. It's a wooden cross piece that be fashioned over the neck of two animals. It keeps them together to harness their power while they're pulling heavy loads. But sometimes these would be used physically in enslavement or in bondage. The staff and the rod would be a reminder of tools that would be used to further oppression. Now, here's the thing. 
If you just flip one chapter over, Isaiah 10 tells us that the Assyrians used all three of these things, the yoke, the staff, and the rod, to put down and to keep their heavy hand on those they are oppressing. These are vivid symbols and reminders of enslavement. But despite this bondage, what's going to happen? The Lord will shatter them. These symbols are broken by the Lord. And Isaiah here references that this freedom will be like the day of Midian. He's referencing the famous story from Judges 6 and 7. We read it recently in our community Bible reading, if you've been with us there. If you remember in that story, the Lord takes an army of 30,000 men led by Gideon, and he systematically and strangely reduces them down to 300. And this 300, they end up winning the battle, not because of any uh, impressive military strategy of acumen. You remember how it happened? These 300 men, they surrounded the camp of the Midianites, and the Lord tells them to blow trumpets, to smash jars, and to raise up torches. How's that for a military strategy? Go get them. And what happens? The Midianites freak out. They think they're being ambushed, and they start to turn in and kill one another and scatter. And the Lord says, that's how you're going to be delivered. It'll be like the day of Midian, which, by the way, means uh, they don't actually do anything but watch the Lord deliver them. Isaiah says it will be something like that, only greater. That kind of freedom is coming. And thirdly, this light will bring peace. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God here, the promise is that he will not only break the bonds and chains that enslave his people, the yoke and the staff and the rod, but he will also put an end to all conflict itself. The description, again, is not of the people participating in a warfare where they overcome the enemy, but instead, it's the aftermath of a battle that's already been won. The boots of war, the bloody garments of soldiers, they will be burned and forever destroyed in a fire. Why? Because they won't be needed anymore. All the necessities for warfare will be done away with once and for all. And as Ray Ortland has beautifully put it, every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. For a war-torn people, again, this would have felt too good to be true, but that kind of peace is coming. There's a promise of these things. There is a joy, there is a freedom, there is a peace that is promised here. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty incredible. Like, I want in on that. Do you want in on that? I do. But for the people dwelling in darkness, for those who feel the, the weight and the encroaching of death's shadow, this would have been too good to be true. Now, up to this point, one massive detail has been missing. I mean, there's a stark contrast between 8 and 9, isn't there? I mean, 8, it's, it's dark. I mean, it's dark, dark. Like, Isaiah comes up with three different Hebrew words to describe just how dark it is. And then in chapter 9, it's just this glorious but that comes on the scene. There's no more this darkness, but now this glorious light that is coming. It's just a sharp contrast between the two. How does this actually come about? Well, follow the text. There's three straight fours that Isaiah gives us. Verse 4, it says, 
For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his oppressors, he will break. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, it will be burned in the fire of God's grace. And then we get to the third four. Now, what do we expect? We expect, okay, tell us who's coming. Tell us this great military leader that's coming on the scene. Verse 6 says this, for to us a child is born. It's meant to be a little comical. You guys are too familiar with Christmas. (laughs) That ought to jump out in the page to us. So that kind of joy, that kind of peace, that kind of deliverance is coming. How is it coming? It's coming through a child. The mighty conqueror who wins this stunning victory for God's people is a baby, a son. See, what we should expect here is some impressive figure to drop out of heaven, to stride confidently across the world stage, to lead his people as a mighty deliverer and a military commander so that all would indisputably know he is the one who is coming. But that is not what is promised here, nor is that what happens, is it? Instead, we're promised a baby. I mean, is there anything more vulnerable and weak than a newborn child? But this is how God works, brothers and sisters. As Ray Ortland says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. So how does that work? Let's keep reading. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is not merely a royal birth announcement, though that is part of what's happening here. This child, this son who is given, his name will be these four coupled titles. And to be as clear as I can be, these titles, these nouns, are only attributable to God himself. He'll be known as Wonderful Counselor. He will give wise counsel to his people, not as a dictator, but as a sympathetic healer. And as a counselor, he will have the best ideas and the best strategies. He is the source of all wisdom, and he helps and cares for those who are mourning or who have lost their way. Wonderful counselor. And he is mighty God. He is not a JV God. He is not a sort of divine being. He is mighty God come in the flesh the most astounding and audacious claim of the Christian faith is that mighty God will be born. He will accomplish his mission. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. Though he is born, he is from everlasting. He is the creator, yet becomes a child. The maker becomes a man. He exhibits a never-ending fatherly concern for his people, his everlasting father, and he is the prince of peace. 
Though we were enemies, and though this world is full of hostility, he brings reconciliation. He brings healing in his wings, as we've already sung this morning, and he leads his people into peace. He's the Prince of Peace. This is the name of this child. Now, there's a glorious mystery here, isn't there? How can all of that be contained in a child? Well, this is what we dare to believe at Advent and at Christmas. This is the foretelling of the incarnation of God himself, where, as Jared Wilson puts it, the fullness of deity dwelled embryonically. And brothers and sisters, if you want to talk about humility, I would argue there's no greater picture of humility than that. This is an astounding truth. The word became flesh. But there's more. Isaiah tells us that this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace, the government will be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He comes to fulfill all the promises given to King David that someone from his line would reign forever over God's people. His kingdom of grace and glory and light will expand forever into eternity with no end. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you this morning that there are shoulders out there that can handle the weight of the world, and they are not your shoulders. In our pride, we can get caught up thinking that we can rule our own little kingdoms, that we can be in charge of our little domain, that we can solve our problems, and Isaiah is telling us that drives you to darkness. And the way out is to let this son bear the weight. The government is upon his shoulders. And this is where the, in an ultimate sense, these names, they push us beyond the Christmas scene to something greater. You see, the baby Jesus who comes would grow up. He would live a life that's perfectly righteous. He then resolutely sets his face to Jerusalem where he knew he was going to be crucified in the place of a guilty humanity and where the victory of God would be won in the most unorthodox way for the most unlikely of people. Jesus takes a fearless inventory of the darkness on the cross. Remember what happens on the cross? Darkness descends on the land, descends on Jesus. But just when it appeared that the light of the world was snuffed out at the cross, three days later, we're given definitive and indisputable evidence that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Sunday morning, Jesus emerges from the place of the dead. He's holding the keys to the kingdom of darkness. He tosses them aside. He ascends to the right hand of God the Father. He promises to come again when he will make every sad thing come untrue. And Isaiah tells us to end this passage, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, that means you and I did not do this. God did this. And for his zeal and for his glory, he accomplished this through this child that was born, through this son that was given. Now let's step back. How does that good news become ours today? If you pay close attention to this passage, you'll find that those who receive this wonderful reality are simply that, they're recipients. The invitation of this passage is to receive the gift of this child. 
The key phrase here is, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. A son is given. Now, some gifts that we can receive can be a bit humbling, can't they? I mean, if your spouse gives you a book on dieting for Christmas, you're like, well, okay. Right, if you get gifted a book about how to overcome selfishness from one of your friends, I mean, it's humbling, isn't it? (laughs) Gifts often require humility to receive them. But friends, the only way that we move from the darkness of Isaiah chapter 8 into the glorious light of Isaiah chapter 9 is to receive that, to repent of our pride that contributes to the darkness and to step foot in faith into the light of the glorious reign of this promised child. But let me close where we started. The only way to get there is the humble path. The prideful will never step out of the darkness. Those who think they've got it all under control will never receive the gift of this child. The prerequisite to join this kingdom of light is to know that you need help, to admit you're not okay, and to run to the Savior. Tim Keller says it this way, there's never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means we are so lost so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That means you are not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a moral and good life. To accept the true Christmas gift, you have to admit you're a sinner. You need to be saved by grace. You need to give up control of your life. That is descending lower than any of us really wants to go. Yet, Jesus Christ's greatness is seen in how far down he came to love us. Your spiritual regeneration and eventual greatness will be achieved by going down the same path. Listen, the path of humility is lower than any of us really want to go. But our Savior has gone far lower than you and I have ever even conceived going. And he's done so to call us out of darkness and bring us into light. To call us out of our pride and to receive the gift of Jesus. It is scandalously offered to everybody in this room. So this morning, have you received the gift? I urge you, it's not too late. This is the point of Christmas. Humbly receive the gift and step into the light. Let's pray. Lord, what an incredible truth that you've reminded us of this morning from your word. Lord, we are a people who dwell in darkness, who feel death's shadow, who feel it both around us and within us, if we are being honest. So I pray this morning that we would see the light of Christ shining forth from outside of us and outside of this world, and that we would run to the light, that we would repent of our pride that contributes to the darkness, and we would humbly receive the gift of Jesus. Holy Spirit, may you empower us to do so. Show us the places in our lives where we are acting in pride, where we are resisting your grace and your kindness, and draw us to the foot of the cross, draw us to that place of repentance and faith. Encourage us in that way. Lord, for those who are suffering in this season, those who feel the darkness of this world and feel it keenly, when those who are reminded maybe of people that are not here that should be here, of disappointments, of dreams that are shattered, may you uplift them and encourage them in the universe-altering good news of the gospel. Jesus, make yourself known to them, comfort them, 
And for those who are, again, resisting this message, Jesus, may you soften their hearts so they might turn and believe and receive life and life abundant in you. Help us to celebrate that good news well as we long for the day when you make all things new and we feel this joy and this freedom and this peace in its fullest. Strengthen us until that day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.